are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ and glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up tonight on page 359 at the very bottom of the page with the letter C from Abba Mark. And if you remember, we've been uh, talking a little bit about the, the solitary life and that most uh, put forward the life in the synobium, common life, as being the, the wiser path, especially when one is young, that as the formation of the virtues take place and the struggle with the passions, that it's thought to be best to be able to make that struggle, not in isolation, uh, but uh, in common with others and under the guidance of a superior abbot or spiritual elder. And uh, tonight we'll be looking at some of the reasons uh, as to why they thought it was, they thought it was dangerous uh, to take that, perilous, in fact, to take that path uh, too quickly. And by too quickly, not uh, just uh, in a couple of years, but rather decades uh, would be, uh, even after decades of living the common life would be too early for many until the, the passions had really been uprooted. And part of the reason that we looked at last time is that if one falls, there's no one there to lift you up. And if, especially if you're living in deep isolation in the desert, and uh, one can fall into delusion uh, very quickly. And, um, and so they'll take us pretty deep here into what needs to take place before one considers the, the solitary life. And um, I'm beginning to see emerge again, the eremitic life in the West, uh, not so much surprisingly within the monastic communities, uh, but among lay people that there is uh, an article in canon law that allows for uh, a person to become uh, a hermit and like a diocesan hermit. Not that one would have to uh, be linked to the diocese in any way, but to officially embrace that uh, way of life, to create a role uh, and to live that role underneath the, the bishop of a, of a particular diocese. And uh, this is beginning to emerge with a great, greater frequency, I found, uh, uh, in these days. And not, not so much in Western monastic communities. Uh, don't hear too, as much about it as you do among the Eastern communities. So again, we're picking up on page 359 at the bottom of the page. Abba Mark. There is an energy of grace that is unknown to the neophyte in the spiritual life, and there is another energy of evil that resembles the truth. It is good for us not to reflect on these energies since they may lead us into delusion. Nor again should we dismiss them because of our ignorance of the truth. Rather, we should lay everything before God in hope, for he knows what is of value in both of them. And so, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I read this over a couple of times and thought about what he might be discussing here. And uh, certainly, I think simply the struggle between good and evil that we, we see within ourselves, our attraction to sin, as well as our attraction to God and the things of God. And uh, 
and if we were to go deeper on a psycholo psychological level, you know, that there can be not only these contradictions that exist in us, but uh, things that can move us to a kind of self-destruction. Uh, and uh, he doesn't encourage people to overanalyze this, but to rather be aware of that, that we can choose things that on the surface seem to be good or of the truth, and yet they lead to an undermining of our spiritual life, our relationship with God, or perhaps uh, our relationship with the community uh, that we belong to. And uh, so we, we want to, to be aware of the, this internal struggle and the contradictions that exist within us at times, side by side. And I think there, there needs to be kind of humility to be able to acknowledge that. And we see it in the saints. They knew that they loved and hated the same thing at the same time, and that it was often difficult to, to uh, let go of their attachment uh, to the things of, of their past life, that they were often drawn back uh, to the things that they knew were destructive over and over again. And, uh, and so I think uh, similarly, Abba Mark here wants us to recognize this within us uh, so that we can continue in that struggle throughout our life, that we would be aware of this fundamental truth and struggle that exists internally. Anybody else have any comments on that or any thoughts on it? Okay. Letter D from Abba Cassian, so John Cassian. Regarding those who live together with other brothers and because they cannot endure the warfare that comes from the passions, seek the desert and solitude, since supposedly there in the desert nothing exists to arouse the passions and to stimulate them, and who believe that they will easily overcome the passions in this way. Make known to them that they are being mocked by the demons or are possessed by incurable pride. For by not wanting to approach themselves and ascribe the causes of their passions to their own la laziness, they find fault with their brothers and want to flee from them. And for this reason, their afflictions go unhealed. And so one of the big temptations for us in the spiritual life is this kind of fantasy that emerges regularly in my life at least, uh, to find a cabin in the woods near some water and to live a peaceful life. And uh, I think we mentioned last time, one of the philosophers, Sartre, saying that hell is other men. And, uh, and so, so often we can feel that way, that to, to be in the presence of others stirs up anger within us. We become frustrated with them and how they treat us, or if they treat us with a lack of dignity or respect. And so the thought is that if we move to solitude, if we get away from them, or if we're in the world, uh, if we get away from you know simply those that we work with, uh, that uh, our lives would be peaceful. And uh, this is one of the big things that the fathers will challenge here within this particular hypothesis that we, we take ourselves with us and the passions come not from others, but from within ourselves. And the things that we've given ourselves over to or the temptations that come to us from the evil one or neglect or laziness within the spiritual life that we have not been attentive to what goes on within our hearts or we have not been attentive to the life of prayer. And so right from the beginning, Cassian tells us that we cannot run to solitude uh, because the battle lies within the human heart, no matter where we live. And I think most of us have enough memories to last us the rest of our lives, even if we were to go into solitude, they'd be coming, they'd be coming to mind more in solitude, because if you're left by yourself, things are going to start emerging from really deep within the unconscious. Uh, and so even to live in community where there is deep silence, uh, like a Carmel in the West uh, or one of the Eastern monasteries, that I think those who are discerning whether or not somebody should enter the common life is if there is an, a kind of an emotional and spiritual maturity there that would allow them to enter into it 
uh, and without it bringing harm to themselves or to the community, uh, or without, uh, or if they need a greater preparation to take more time in their life before they would make such a decision. Uh, to enter into the deep silence, for, like of a Trappist monastery, or as I mentioned, a Carmel. Uh, again, one is going to be faced not only with feelings towards others and one's own passions, but things that emerge from deep within the human heart. Uh, to immerse oneself in that silence can be very challenging. And uh, it can be revealing in a good way. And I think that's why it's put forward uh, by the fathers as kind of the spiritual battleground for us. But to be thrust into it prematurely or without preparation or good guidance can, can really be very harmful or dangerous. For whatever uncured passions they take with them into the desert, they will only conceal through solitude without, however, being rid of them. This is because solitude, for those who have not yet been delivered from the passions, not only keeps faults unrevealed, but also knows how to conceal them, so that those who have these passions do not perceive that they have them, and as a result, do not recognize by what passions they are overcome, and so not able then to seek the, the proper means of healing them or uprooting them. Uh, so at least within the common life, if the struggle emerges or those things begin to emerge from deep within the human heart, that one would have a spiritual elder. And we've talked in the past about one of their practices being going to their spiritual elder at the end of the day and revealing the thoughts that they've had, precisely to lay before their spiritual elder the, the things that simply come to mind that might reveal something about the particular passions that they are struggling with. And, uh, but uh, if one lives in a community where that kind of formation isn't present, uh, then one might not be even within the common life aware of them in the way that John speaks of them here. They can conceal themselves uh, uh, and we can conceal them from, from ourselves. Uh, by simply turning our attention to other things. Uh, we often do not want to look closely at the dominant passions in our life. And so we can engage in the spiritual life, even with kind of enthusiasm, and hum humble ourselves uh, in acknowledging certain things that we struggle with while ignoring or not being attentive to something that's perhaps far more hobbling in our relationship with others or our relationship with God. And so whether in the common life or in the life of solitude, uh, having uh, someone, having either worked through that with someone for many decades or uh, having somebody in the community that's able to do that is essential. And uh, it's, you know, whole communities can be affected by it and undermined, uh, and uh, there can be, again, not only a spiritual Im immaturity, but an emotional immaturity that exists in that silence, because there isn't the typical engagement, social engagement that one would have. Uh, I've called in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I've called aromatic communities, communities of hermits or skeet, uh, in response to a question that they they had about, you know, if I would come and give a talk or a community retreat. And, you know, I started a little bit of a conversation with one of them on the phone. And he basically said, well, I just need to know whether or not you can come. And that's all he wanted to know and be done with the conversation and move on. And uh, it was rather curt. And so, you know, it, in this kind of life, one can lose, you know, some of the, the social norms that, that we would have in the way that we relate to each other. And this can be even in a high functioning community. So if you think uh, if there's a community that is not well formed uh, in the spiritual life or uh, 
and does not does not have anyone uh, superior or elders in the community to guide and direct them, the common life can devolve into something uh, that's very, very disordered on multiple levels. Laura Lay writes, oh, is responding to Cindy here about the consecrated virgin. Cindy, I think it's probably different in that you can continue to live in the world in any way you feel called as a consecrated virgin, but I believe that being a hermit involves deliberately leaving the world to live apart. Uh, yeah, you know, I think the hermits, the canon law leaves, leaves room for them to lead a more uh, solitary life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to move out in the woods and have no contact with anyone. So somebody can become a diocesan hermit and uh, simply live a more secluded life, a life of deeper prayer. And, uh, and but as a, a lay person, I think this, uh, the church wanted to be able to preserve this way of life. And this is one of the ways that it did, uh, sought to do it through, through canon law, making it possible. But it is distinct from one who, Comes a consecrated virgin who's you know uh, promising uh, you know for for their life to remain uh, celibate. Okay. Conversely, uh, Cassian writes: evil thoughts make them imagine that they are upright and that they have achieved long suffering, humility, and the other virtues. Temptation puts these things into their minds because there is no one uh, there to stimulate them. So, you know, someone can think that they have entered into, uh, to use again, Carmelite spirituality, the dark night uh, uh, that John of the Cross speaks of. And this might not be the truth. Uh, there is a kind of darkness that sin and the passions can bring to us and a kind of despondency as well that might be what the person is experiencing and not this perfecting of faith that John of the Cross speaks about. And so there, again, there has to be great care here that the temptation then is to put these things in the mind, that you've reached this level of, of spiritual perfection that God is drawing you on to the life of solitude. And so one begins to interpret in one's mind all these things going on as if it's true. And uh, one might be experiencing a whole host of trials in one's life, but they, they might not certainly be the dark night of the soul. They might be even a part of the purgation that takes place uh, in the sense of letting go of self-will or egotism uh, that we, the crosses that we experience during this life, but they might not mean that a person has reached the level of spiritual perfection that they imagine. He goes on to say, but when some pretext arouses them from their stillness and stimulates them, then at once the passions which were hidden in them were not previously detected, rush forth violently like unbridled horses which bolt from their starting point and throw their rider to its destruction with their violence and ferocity. This destructive onrush of the passions is the result of the fact that the passions are more greatly agitated through lengthy quietness and repose, thus becoming more threatening in their impassioned energy. So isn't that interesting? You know, we could want to flee from circumstances where we are being put to the test and our passions are being revealed to us daily. And yet we're struggling with them or battling with them. We go to confession, we receive Holy Communion, we seek spiritual counsel. A person might enter into great solitude and be blind to these passions and, uh, and be inattentive to them. And the, the quietness and the, the lengthy uh, sort of a quietness and repose that one seems to experience for a period of time uh, can simply prepare for this destructive episode to take place, for the passion to emerge when something stimulates it or triggers it. So a person might go on for years thinking, I am not subject to these passions any longer, 
because I, ha they, I haven't been afflicted by them. And even when certain thoughts have come to my mind, I've easily set them aside or not given myself over to them. But maybe there wasn't this sort of constellation of thoughts or circumstances uh, this, uh, where, you know, thoughts are coalesce in a pattern or experience, and as we experience them in a certain pattern where all of a sudden we're knocked off of our feet, and that gentleness and that repose that we have is lost to us, and we find out, like, we, we feel like we've been hit with a wave uh, that uh, is very destructive and has overcome us. Rachel writes, this reminds me of St. Paul stating that he doesn't even judge himself. Years ago, this statement left me wondering at what he meant, and I've now come to believe that what Cassian is saying is the same thing that St. Paul was saying. He had a thorn in the flesh, knew a man taken up to the third heaven. It does not even judge himself, not even stopping to examine himself, except to boast of his weakness in order to glorify God's mercy. Right. And so um, I've always I've thought that about Paul's writing as well, that he knew. Uh, and I th think the most important thing that he said there is that even if his conscience does, does not bother him, he does not see this as evidence that he's been freed of his sin or tendency towards sin, that the only stance before God is that of humility and trusting in his grace and vigilance and watchfulness even if one has deep spiritual experiences one could surmise that uh he was talking about himself you know this individual this man and quotes being raised up to the third heaven a kind of mystical experience uh but you know i think paul realizes that this can be uh you know, more of an opportunity uh, for spiritual disaster, for delusion, to make too much of such a thing. Laura Lay writes, seems like whether in community or as a hermit, one needs to be prepared to be a plucky fighter. Yes, as John Klimakus said, very good. I'm glad somebody's listening and memorized that. But that's uh, right, that uh, constantly raging waging this battle uh, against the thoughts that come to us and with a kind of fierceness that we heard about uh, last week, uh, that this moment that the serpent shows its head uh, to strike it off and uh, that in the spiritual battle that one has to, there has to be a kind of holy violence in that regard especially the way that John uh, Climacus lays out the development of temptation, beginning with this converse, a kind of conversation with a thought, an idea, a temptation that's put before the mind. And the counsel is, is that if at the very beginning you, you strike the head of that serpent off, you protect yourself from going through all the different uh, stages that follow, and uh, it's good advice. I think uh, it's often our lingering uh, with thoughts, partly because they give us pleasure and partly because of our pride that we, we think that they won't draw us into that sinful state. Eric writes, can you relate these aromatic hazards to ordinary laymen who live involuntarily alone, but in the world? Obviously some hazards apply, but some may not. Can you comment? Uh, I think a, a lot of them certainly do apply. Uh, I think there is there are some common elements to uh, human nature. You know, there's common psychology and anthropology that exist that uh, whether one is uh, a monk or a hermit, we are going to have to struggle with these things right from the beginning of where we started today with this kind of, this kind of, uh, contrary things existing within the human heart, this movement toward life and that which is beautiful, that which is virtuous, and the movement towards that which is of darkness, towards sin. And so I think in every way we can apply what's been said here. 
that we need that same kind of vigilance and wherever we are in the spiritual life, not, not to let our uh, estimation of ourself uh, be higher than what it really is. Uh, that we, we need to realize that there's a lot that is hidden from us, even about ourselves, that the human per person is a kind of mystery. And we often do mysterious things that even surprise us. You know, the, why did that thought come to mind? Why did I dream that? Or why did I respond in this way when this person said this to me? Uh, or why did I take this path? in my life, you know, or this particular voc vocation, that each person is unique. And, uh, and so the, the basic outline, I think that's put forward here, uh, so sort of guides us through some of the pitfalls that we might face simply from being human beings, our, our nature, especially living in a fallen world, you know, this idea of a weakened will, a darkened intellect. We often don't see things uh, as they truly are. And even when we do see them clearly, we will often, because of the weakness of our will, choose the opposite. And if I've mentioned this before, but it's why in my study of, of psychology, I gravitated towards psychoanalysis, because even though Freud was an atheist, I think he did respect this kind of mystery of the human person that is put forward here for us, that there was, you know, he describes it as a kind of iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is what we are conscious of. Everything beneath the water, which expands out, we are unconscious of. And uh, I think in our spiritual life to have a healthy awareness of that, you know, whether we live in the world or as a hermit, and especially as we live alone, uh, to, to be attentive to that, you know, to keep, uh, I was reading a little bit further on, to keep one's mind focused on things that uh, we are reflecting upon, say, through our reading. So to keep the thoughts from wandering and taking us where they will, or our emotions to just draw us where we're feeling on a particular day to pray with a kind of constancy, to create a prayer role for ourselves, to seek out counsel within the confessional, uh, to receive Holy Communion frequently. Uh, so if one is living, you know, almost involuntarily alone in the world, I think the, the greater need to seek the uh, community, I think with other faithful, uh, whether it's in one's parish or through groups like this, uh, or a lot of people are attracted to becoming oblates or third order, uh, members of third orders for similar reasons, you know, that they uh, can find this, those who have this common vision of life and are pursuing a similar end, uh, which is holiness of life, you know, to live our baptismal promises out fully. And, uh, and so even if one is in, living involuntarily alone, uh, you know, one doesn't want to live that life as like a perpetual bachelor, uh, you know, that uh, there has to be this sense that there's providence in God, even in that aloneness. And it might be difficult for a whole host of reasons, but that we would enter into the spiritual life uh, with almost imitating, I think, uh, the solitaries or, or, or taking this counsel to heart, even in a greater measure, knowing that we would face some of the same struggles as one who enters into the solitary life too quickly. Now, there are going to be things, you know, even for those living in the world, you know, you're day on the job is going to probably confront you with many opportunities to struggle with your passions, you know, irritation, anger towards others, or, uh, or impatience, even with, with oneself and accomplishing certain tasks in the time frame in which you would want to accomplish them, uh, not to lose one's peace or stillness of heart. Uh, not to use that free time simply for dissipation 
but to keep oneself focused upon that which is good. Okay. Lorelei, the thing is, though, about living alone in the world, you know very well that there is no one there to catch you when you fall. Uh, everything. Right. Uh, so that's right. Well, I think meant some know that. Maybe others aren't as aware of it as perhaps they, they need to be. And I think that's why reading these readings can be valuable, that uh, knowing that fact that if we do live alone, that may afford us the opportunity to shape our life and use our time and create a kind of simplicity of life. But it also then means that we order that life in such a way that, again, it doesn't become dissipated, that we don't become, you know, perpetual, as I said, perpetual bachelors, that we are seeking holiness of life within our particular state. And uh, it was interesting. Uh, do you know Edith Stein, uh, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross? She, uh, in her writings, uh, I was surprised to find that she talks about, she sort of envisioned emerging in the coming generations, those living in the world in particular, who live uh, uh, the single life that even before there was you know, much thought about. It. I think it's much more common now to hear uh, it spoken about in uh, Catholic circles. Uh, but you know, she was writing this you know, in the mid 20th century or, or earlier and uh, could see the, this potentially emerging in the generations to come. And so we would need to be prepared for it in the sense of, uh, people writing about it. And, uh, and so if people were to write things, I think today it would be to distill what we are, are reading uh, for, for those living in the world and perhaps those living the single life. And I think also uh, in, uh, for women or that women would reflect upon these writings because most of we do have some writings from uh, you know, the, those who embrace the ascetic life, women in the desert, amas, but uh, a lot of the things as you've seen have been written from a man's perspective and experience. And so I think uh, for women to, to write about these, these things and about the spiritual life, I think it's becoming a little bit more common in some of the modern Eastern communities. I've come across some writings of the superiors of communities that are, are beautiful. Uh, they're elders, if you will, but uh, I think it's something lacking, especially about the ascetic life. Uh, and uh, I think it's that's lacking as a whole in terms of our vision of what it is to be a Christian, uh, that asceticism existed before monasticism did. And uh, and I think sort of recapturing that for our generation is very important. Okay. Now at the bottom of the page of 360. Just as poisonous snakes, which remain in solitude in the desert and their lairs, only manifest their ferocity when they perceive someone approaching, so also do impassioned men act. These men live in solitude, not from a disposition towards virtue or on account of the demands of the desert. And for this reason, they pour out their venom when they lay hold of someone who approaches them. So there can be those who enter into the desert not to engage in the spiritual battle more fully or because they're seeking holiness. Uh, or that they feel that uh, virtue will arise out of it, but simply again because they do not like necessarily being a, around men. Uh, there was uh, a movie in recent times made by Clint Eastwood. What was that? The, it was after, named after a car. Uh, my dad actually had one of those. Can anybody remember the name of that movie by chance? Oh, come on. 
Yeah, that's right. Grant Torino. Thank you. Who was that, Anthony? And uh, one of the famous lines is that, you know, he uh, some of the neighborhood kids are, you know, wrestling and they, you know, run over into his front yard and he comes out of his front, you know, front lawn uh, on his front porch and says, get off of my lawn. And <laughs> and it's sort of become this meme now in social media for grumpy old men, you know, curmudgeons, you know, get off my lawn, you know, sort of stay out of my business. And uh, there can be those who enter into the life of solitude just because they are curmudgeonly. And so when they come into somebody's uh, presence who pushes their buttons, they pour out all of their venom, Cassian tells us, on them. And, uh, and strike with a kind of fierceness. And, and, and so again, so the solitary life is not a panacea you know, for the passions. It can actually intensify, uh, intensify them and make them deeper. Anthony writes, I suggest that maybe women have more living examples of a secular spiritual life since widows with their maturity and their link to other widows are more common than widowers. And certainly that's true within the spiritual tradition itself. Um, and then Eric writes, oh, that's where uh, that came from. I, I've used that. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Yeah, I've used that quite a few times, actually. <laughs> um, Yes, I think, and, you know, there is a, a void there, I think, that needs to be addressed, and, you know, how the ascetic life applies, and I've seen it written about, but uh, again, you can't do it, you have to be, you have to do the work, and not only of studying the fathers, but of striving to live the life over the course of decades before one could write a work like that. Otherwise, it's going to be a kind of popularized vision, I think, of what we find from the spiritual tradition. I think there has to be those who emerge that aren't seeking to popularize. And I think that can be the danger in our day, you know, to present something of the tradition that is beautiful, that is important, that is needed, but to present it in a way that uh, it doesn't take root. You know, it, it might uh, sort of like the seed that falls on, you know, shallow ground, you know, it's, or, you know, sprouts up very quickly, but it doesn't endure when it's put to the test. And I think that's the, the danger of our modern day that, you know, we can make these things uh, interesting and accessible and accessible very quickly, but not necessarily present them in such a way that they take root. Okay, anything from Cassian here that anyone would like to comment on or question? Okay. From St. Barsanufius, a brother once asked an elder, my mind tells me that solitude is more necessary than all the other virtues and is beneficial to my soul. Is it right in what it says? So it's refreshing to hear somebody ask a question whether or not his mind is thinking about things in the right way, that he has the awareness at least to ask the question. Uh, the elder answers, stillness is nothing other than restraining the heart from all transactions, from attempting to please men and from other similar activities. If then stillness is what you desire, do not have dealings with worldly people and you will have quietness as long as they are separated from you. The Lord tells us, I will have mercy and I, I'm sorry, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. If you are well aware that compassion is worth more than sacrifice, then let your heart incline towards compassion. For the pretext of solitude leads to arrogance before a man gains himself. That is, before he succeeds in becoming blameless. Only when a man takes up his cross is he able to live in inner solitude. So isn't it interesting that he doesn't deny the value of solitude, but he, he tells the young man that, you, again, you don't have to run off to the desert, that you can create a simple and quiet life 
by not seeking constantly to please others, of choosing a path uh, that might not uh, complicate your life, in fact, choosing the opposite direction and avoiding dealings with you know, the things of this world or worldly people and of being drawn into things simply because everybody else is doing that. And in doing so, you will avoid all the things that can destroy that internal stillness and peace that we desire to hold on to. And uh, uh, again, you know, he warns that uh, this uh, movement towards solitude can again be rooted in arrogance. And so what he puts forward here, I think, is brilliant, which is compassion. That, that we would foster this in light of Christ's teaching uh, uh, above other things, you know, to, to suffer with others, uh, to be attentive towards others, gentle with them, and setting aside one's own will and ego, and that in the sight of God, this is greater than the sacrifices that we would offer, we would otherwise willfully take upon ourselves, even something like entering into the solitude of the desert. So there's a greater sacrifice in stepping away from oneself and one's own pursuits, even if they're spiritual pursuits, and to look at the other with love and compassion and mercy and seek to aid them in any way. This would raise a person up to the heights of sanctity more than running off to, to the desert for some imagined uh, stillness and holiness. Okay, Laura Lee writes, thank you for not running off to a cabin in the woods <laughs> yet. <laughs> I'm still contemplating it, but uh, uh, it's sometimes, some days it's hard not to think about it. So, if therefore you display compassion, you will receive help. But if you wish to ascend beyond your measure, know that you will lose what you have already achieved. Make sure that you avoid extremes and do not stray uh, to one, the one side or the other, but remain in the middle of the road, understanding the will of God, because the days are evil. And so, you know, what compassion strength stressing compassion does is that it keeps a person focused on the here and the now and the other that is before us and not to exalt those things uh, of the spiritual nature that are ordered that we often will redirect towards the self and again you can see often among Christians, this inattentiveness to the others, other in the sense of gentleness and kindness, that, that we've become more and more divided. There can be this uh, kind of harshness that we show towards others. And I think this is a good corrective to it. I think that, you know, that harshness uh, with others and that often that lack of compassion that our speech betrays shows that we have a lot more work to do in our struggle with, with the passions before thinking that then we, we are, we can embrace the prerogative of God and become the protector, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, corrector of everyone else within the church. And, you know, certainly people provide a lot of uh, reasons why individuals would be tempted to do that, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to be tempted to do that easily, especially if we've not been put into that position. I think I, I came across a little quote from uh, Tolkien today that said that his, uh, he leans more towards anarchy. Because to give a person, you know, this power, this sense of importance is such a dangerous thing. And that so few people, one in a million, could be entrusted with it. And uh, that most often that, you know, power and authority over others can, is, can be easily corrupted. 
And I think that's true. I mean, for the same reason that we wouldn't move, want to move into solitude without overcoming the passions, that we wouldn't want to be put in a position of the care of souls uh, or guiding or correcting others if, you know, if, uh, or forming others uh, if, if we lack that formation ourselves. Anthony writes, sometimes I think we try too hard to be good Catholics so hard that we dispel that peace we might otherwise have if we didn't try so hard. Since trying too hard can focus us on our turbulent selves, and to this I would add turbulent times. Perhaps it is to have a hobby and a cigar and an occasional prayer than making and measuring ourselves against a lot of self-imposed religious obligations. Right, you know, I think we can be re reductive in our view of what the spiritual life is about, you know, to reduce it from being uh, the pursuit of love and of entering into this relationship of love with God and desiring God into fulfilling uh, something, often things that uh, we sort of create ourselves and impose upon ourselves. Uh, that really have nothing to do with Christ or his church. And, uh, you know, I see that a lot. You know, as a priest, it's almost been a frightening thing, to be honest with, with you. I think there's a lot that goes on within the life of the church and the life of Christians and the life of priests that has absolutely nothing to do with Christ. And, uh, you know, when things become programmatic, or, you know, when this the speech about the church or, you know, becomes stilted and where, you know, you, when you say it to others, you know, you, you have to try to create a vocabulary around it, uh, you know, and, you know, I think it's far more simple. I think it is what the fathers say here, you know, compassion, mercy. It's what we see in Christ, you know, the, when we think of the parables and how he engaged people, uh, the attentiveness that he had to draw near to people that others found repulsive, uh, you know, lepers or those, you know, spiritually or religiously, morally would have been out at the margins. And, uh, and so uh, to avoid the extremes, uh, he says here and uh, to take the middle, middle road, understanding the will of God, because the days are evil, you know, that we aren't going to have much, perhaps in certain times of counsel. And so to embrace this simple kind of wisdom, and Cassian puts it forward as well, avoiding the extremes in the in spiritual life, and seeking, you know, being single-hearted in one's pursuit of God and in lo loving others. Uh, Eric writes, with all due respect to Tolkien, I'd rather live under a corrupt government than anarchy. Well, I think he was ma simply making a point there about how often uh, power can be something that's corrupting and can, can be used as a means of force. Uh, you know, I don't think he was necessarily making the kind of statement that we would live under, you know, live in anarchy or chaos. Uh, okay, next paragraph. The brother again asked, Elder, please clarify for me what you mean by what you said, neither to the one side nor to the other, but in the middle. Do you perhaps mean that we should dedicate certain days to quietness and certain others to material concerns? The elder replied, for one to have fortitude and quietness, but not to disdain his various occupations, this is the middle way, which never fails. But one must have humility in the arena of quietness to preserve his sobriety and vigilance in the face of inevitable distractions and to collect his mind so that not one moment of the hour, to say nothing of the day, is free for the devil to exploit it. One must indeed act thus in accordance with whatever befalls him. So it's interesting, you know, the elders telling him that it's best to have 
occupation and engagement with others, that this is by far the more formative path for us and the safer path. And that even when taking that middle road, uh, one would uh, still want to preserve humility in order that we, we don't fall into uh, a kind of idleness that allows the devil to, to redirect our attention, uh, not only to the things sinful, but to, to what, what others are doing, rather than, again, what is immediately at hand. We should suffer with the brothers on, of the whole synopium. When a monk does this, he puts the commandment of the apostle into practice. That is, if anyone from the synopium is in distress, one should feel distress along with him in order to alleviate and comfort him. And if one suffers with ailing, this means those being tested by afflictions and helps to cure them, that is good. For if a doctor is recompensed for looking after a sick man, how much more will he receive in exchange who suffers with his neighbor as far as he's able in all of his trials? If on the other hand, someone suffers with his neighbor only in certain afflictions and, and not in all, then even in those cases in which he does suffer with his neighbor, he does so according to his own will, not according to God's will. Know this also that a man makes progress to the extent that he is humble. As for your remaining in your cell now, since you do not have any afflictions, you will not accomplish anything good. And if you remain free from cares prior to undertaking the eremitic and hesychastic life, then the common enemy will prepare for you a greater disturbance of your rest in order to bring you to the point of saying in despair, would that I had not been born. So this is perhaps the, the strongest statement so far, that uh, we are to be attentive to others. And so if you live in the synopium, to uh, experience and enter into the distress of others with love, and not to simply choose which of those moments that you do that, or with which individual, but with everyone with whom you live, seek to be compassionate, compassionate and attentive to what they're struggling with. Uh, and uh, that if he does not live this and instead chooses the, the life of remaining in his cell, he says that if, if you've not been afflicted by living the common life, then entering into the eremitic life is not only not going to produce fruit for you, but can, could bring you to the worst point for us as human beings of wishing that one has not been born, that one could fall into such darkness and despondency and begin to question the spiritual life and the value of the spiritual life altogether, that one would lose one's faith completely or one would lose sight of the meaning of one's life completely. I wish that I was, was not born. So in, both here and in Cassian, uh, I'm sorry, in Climacus that we've been reading, you know, we're, we're given a much different vision of the, life, of the spiritual life, that we embrace the sufferings of our life and the crosses of our life, uh, small or large, in order that we might be freed from the passions. And all of this is a preparation, if you remember, for our then making the ascent of the cross with Christ, of being united with him in, in his sufferings, uh, in such a way that there is no impediment of self-will or selfishness, anything that is an impediment to our loving fully. So our engaging in the spiritual battle is not simply to bring us to a moral perfection in some way. It's really to free us from those impediments to love. And freed from those impediments, then we are capable of giving ourselves in a self-emptying way 
that is equal to that of Christ and that unites us to him. So, you know, we don't want to get lost in this vision of the spiritual life of pursuing this kind of moral and legalistic perfection. Uh, if that were the spiritual life, it would be very much what the, the, the Pharisees lived. You know, that objectively, they were holy individuals. You know, they lived this rigorous life, and one would even say a very ascetic life. Uh, it wasn't just that they kept all these codes of the that surrounded the law that they had created, you know, in terms of pure uh, certain uh, ritual purity, but they did, you know, fast, they did tithe, you know, they did even watch uh, their their uh, vision so as their hearts would not be drawn into lust. There was one group of Pharisees called the bloodied and bruised Pharisees because they walked with their heads down and their eyes nearly shut so that they wouldn't gaze upon anyone lustfully and so often would run into trees or fall into ditches. And uh, but this was their, their view of what holiness was or what it took to be holy. And so, you know, we could be easily drawn down a similar ridiculous kind of path moralistic, legalistic, or something that we've created that satisfies something within our own mind. Maybe this kind of obsessive compulsive need that we have, or driven something driven by shame from another period of our life, rather than having Christ as the focal point and Christ present in others that we might love as the focal point. And uh, in that, then, you know, being freed uh, by the grace that flows fr from that kind of love, from that kind of compassion by imitating our Lord. So very, very powerful, I think. If, therefore, a man succeeds according to his ability in tolerating, is that the right paragraph? Are we at the last paragraph there? I lost my spot. Anybody following along? Last paragraph on the page? No. Uh, the brother again asked the elder. Okay. The brother again asked the elder. Elder, my thoughts tell me that if I go somewhere and live in solitude, no, I read that, then I shall attain to a measure of perfect silence. For I feel myself to be guilty, okay, guilty of many sins, and I want to be freed from them. Likewise, because I'm living with others, tears and compunction do not come to me. And my thoughts say to me that as long as I remain together with other people, I will not be able to acquire these gifts. Have pity on my weakness, my father, and tell me how I'm to be saved from these evil thoughts. So the notion is, is that the gift of tears uh, or the gift of compunction, again, is something that only could arise in solitude. And so one might be tempted in thinking of the life of the, uh, of the monks who are more experienced in the, in the ascetic life and have those gifts and allow that to draw one to the solitude rather than seeing that, you know, those tears and the depth of that compunction arise out of years of struggling with one's own passions and seeing how one often falls short of loving and engaging in that battle in the context of the, the common life. And so you know, to again, to rush out into solitude, to think that one is going to receive those higher gifts uh, or what are seen as higher gifts, at least, is, uh, can be a delusion in and of itself. The elder responded again, brother, a man who's in debt, as long as he has not first settled his debt, will never, wherever he may go, be it a city or a village, be a debtor and will not have the freedom to remain in a state of rest. Even if he works hard, at the outset, he experiences shame from the bantering of men. 
But then, wherever he may be, he can settle his debt and be set free. Once he is free, he is able with confidence and great boldness either to live with others or to stay where he wants. And so it's an interesting image that if you have a debt and you haven't worked to pay that off, nowhere matter where you go, it's going to follow you. And so similarly, if, if you have not uh, sought to repair the, the damage that the passions do to the, the human heart and to relationships that you have not engaged in that spiritual battle, you're, ne you're never going to experience a kind of true freedom and the true rest uh, that you are seeking. Uh, that uh, yeah, you'll never have this kind of confidence uh, in the solitude to produce the fruits even that you desire. That the, if you, you know, one thing will become clear to you is that you try to enter into it too soon and too quickly. If therefore a man succeeds according to his ability in tolerating insults and reproaches or indignities and injuries for the sins that he has committed, he learns humility and toil and receives forgiveness for his sins, as scripture says. Look upon my lowliness and my toil and forgive all my sins. Consider well how many insults our master Christ endured before he was crucified and after he ascended the cross. By analogy, no one can arrive at perfect and fruitful silence and rejoice in the respite of holy perfection, except after having undergoing the same sufferings as Christ and enduring them all without murmuring, keeping in view what the apostle says, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So going back to the previous paragraph, even though if a person enters into the solitude, solitude and works really hard at it, enters into it with goodwill, prematurely, it's not going to bring him what he wants. Whereas the true path is that of humility, of toil, of forgiveness of sins, and of enduring the crosses that our Lord and endured that the the path and that is put before us and the standard that is put before us is Christ himself and again we are often tempted to to make this spiritual path uh something different to alter it and in, you know we talked a little bit about this in one of the groups that's not much different from the apostles you know James and John asking to sit at one at his right and one at his left and then on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter saying, you know, when our Lord is tr transformed before them, you know, let us build th three booths. He wants to house the glory there as if it's something that he can could contain and use for his purpose. When in reality, it's a sign of the glory that's on the other side of the cross. And so after Moses and Elijah disappear, it's Christ himself with them. And then they make their descent towards Jerusalem, uh, there to the cross, you know, that they had not come to see or understand the glory of it as of yet. And I think for many of us as Christians, that struggle remains. I think what we see in uh, the apostles, we, we continue to, to labor with on a day-to-day -day basis. John writes, yesterday's Geringer article talks about exterior-only asceticism. The Jewish casuists were not slow in drawing up their famous formula that all moral goodness was guaranteed to him that had received circumcision. St. Paul later on told them how such a principle was a stumbling block to the Gentiles, leading them to blaspheme the name of God. According to the moral theology of these Hebrew doctors, conscience meant only what the tribunal of public justice issued as its decisions. The obligations of the interior tribunal of man's conscience were to be restricted to the roles followed by the seized courts. The result of such teaching soon showed itself. The only thing people need care for was what was seen by men. If the fault were not one that human eyes could judge, you are not in trouble about it, right? 
And I think this was true of the Pharisees. You know, I think the heart could be, and this is what Christ pointed out, uh, the heart could be as black as hell, but as long as one was living this outwardly righteous life, one could assume that they were right with God. And, and there was no need of repentance. And uh, this is always devastating uh, for the spiritual life and certainly for the Christian. And so it's uh, 834, and uh, maybe we should wrap things up there for tonight. So a lot, lot to think about. And again, this image of the spiritual life, the struggle with the passions, it's not meant to bring us to the kind of freedom or human freedom that we would want. It's the freedom in, that is tr truly free in the eyes of God, you know, free from sin in order to love and give ourselves in love. So we struggle with the passions, not to have this kind of psychological freedom, the sense of ourselves as being not in need of mercy, of forgiveness, uh, but we struggle to overcome the passion, passage, um, passions in order that we could allow ourselves uh, to be poured out uh, in crucified love with, with Christ. And this certainly isn't the same as a kind of, you know, moral perfection or uh, perfection in a legalistic sense. Any final comments before we wrap things up? So a lot to think about and uh, to, to review for next week. Okay, so uh, when we close as always with the, our Father in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.